Today we'll be going over Psalm 91, um, and I will read it to you now. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge, and if you make the Most High your dwelling, no evil will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves you, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of God. A psychologist once reflected presumably after many hours of studying people, that there are only two kinds of human beings who are exempt from fear. Dead people and deranged people. <laughs> the rest of us, we have to deal with this stuff. It's real, isn't it? And there are different ways that we have our fears and concerns. There are the so-called small concerns of life. Individually, they don't seem much, but when you put them all together, cumulatively, they can be a great toll on us. Some of you might be having a Canada Day celebration after this service. Maybe you had it yesterday. And then there's that nervousness. Will it turn out all right? Or will that one member of the family do what that one member of the family always does? What about in this city? Will the new mayor change things for better or for worse. And then the perennial thing of everybody in this area, will the Leafs ever win the Stanley Cup? It does, it gets on you, 1967. It wears you down. And then there are more significant concerns, aren't there? Things that cause sleepless nights, things that can drain the energy and the hope. Will I lose my job? in the company downsizing? Will my child fail at school? Is there any hope of reconciliation in that relationship? Where's you down? But then there are fears that blindside us, overwhelm us. That phone call that comes through and tells you news of the terminal illness. The divorce papers in the mail 
the drowning in debt, the job loss. And that takes, takes you out completely. Now, all of Scripture, as we know, all of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. And the Psalms are inspired in a way that, as Pastor Albert was saying, are wonderful. They're Psalms for every occasion. Some of them, though, are especially rich and comforting in times of fear and sickness and loneliness and trouble. And Psalm 91 is one of those special psalms. It's been committed to memory by literally hundreds of thousands of people. Millions and millions have turned to it in thankfulness in the midst of calamities. Martin Luther is told, we're told, turned to it because he had so many troubles. Charles Spurgeon wrote, I'm going to have to click this thing now. This is what he wrote. Oh, I'm one behind. There we go. Phil, thanks for putting this together, by the way, mate. The whole collection, in the whole collection, there is not a more cheering psalm. Its tone is elevated and sustained throughout. Faith is at its best and speaks loudly. But candidly, having studied this psalm quite a lot in the last couple of weeks, this psalm is both an encouraging psalm and an infuriating one. It's encouraging. Yeah, wow, yes, it is. It, it guarantees that God will be present with us. And we all need to know that. God will protect us. God will provide for us. God will lead us through all these difficult issues of life. Thank you, Lord. But it's infuriating too. I find it infuriating. It seems to be based on a different fairy tale reality where everything works out well and it's a happy ever after end of story. Disney, hello, did you write this psalm? It can leave us annoyed, frustrated, if we're not careful. We ask questions, what about? What about martyrs? What about the cross? What about disabled children? What about the vast number of faithful Christians who pray for healing and hear only silence? It seems like their, their prayers just bounce off the ceiling. I'm all well and good, read this psalm, and you go like, great, I have prayed for 25 years, and nothing, zip, null, not a nout has happened. Frustrating, infuriating. For those of us who experience such brokenness in the world, this Psalm 91 is either a mockery, or it's a call to hope. And that's what makes preaching this psalm really difficult, by the way. One of the lessons that I've been learning recently, perhaps you're like me in this new age that we're living in, is that the pronouns are really important. Okay, I better move on. And that's particularly relevant, though, in this psalm. Here's the first important pronoun. Verse 1, whoever... Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. See, by using the third person impersonal, whoever, it's quite deliberate by the psalmist, he's addressing anyone and everyone, and therefore all of us, who's seeking help in difficult times. This psalm is for you and me. So in this psalm, we encounter a man who refused 
to fall into fear, despite the fact that he was clearly surrounded on every side by chaos and uncertainty. Does that feel a bit familiar? Now, how was he able to stand firm? When he made a decision, this is the important part, he made a decision and he stuck with that decision. What was his decision? It was to worship and follow the Most High Almighty God. That was his decision. Everything else is going crazy. That's what I'm going to do. This decision involved him focusing on the absolute authority and the awesome power of the Creator. And when you have that perspective, everything else looks different. Now, the word here we have, dwell, it means, I, I looked this up in the dictionary, by the way, it, look, it means to remain, to stay, to tarry, to lodge, to make your abode. Okay? It suggests permanence. And we should reflect, therefore, on Jesus when he was speaking in John chapter 15. Verses 7 to 8, Jesus identified his disciples as those who abide, those who dwell in him as branches of the vine. Now, this abiding, this choosing to live and remain in Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. That's what we're called to do. The wonderful reality is that God's presence, his presence with us, always leads to his protection and his provision. We will dwell in him. We will receive his protection and his provision. So the first question the psalmist is asking us is this. How big is your God? Have you boxed him up and he's very small and portable? How big is he? Because he's telling us that we should be worshipping and following the most high almighty God. And that's how big his God is. Not my size. Not the side that big. Is your God that big? Because your response to that question will determine your perspective. And the end result will be whether you walk in fear or by faith. How big is your God? Now the second important pronouns are my and I. Verse 2. In response to God's presence, the, the psalmist then declares his own faith. He affirmed that his Lord is my refuge and my fortress. Do you see how personal his relationship is? And as a result, how confident he is in his God. My God in whom I trust, in whom I feel secure. It's incredibly personal, isn't it? Not the God that Pastor Albert believes in. Convenient and nice that it is, and well done you, but doesn't help me. My God, can you call him? Do you call My God. My God. The imagery here, by the way, is military. Because we're in a battle. God is his defensive position against all the enemies. So now we've got to the point where we actually recognize what the theme of this psalm is about. He's made it clear, we must not place our faith in an abstract entity. 
Our faith must be in a person, in God himself, and nothing less. The danger, of course, is we do place our faith in all sorts of other things. And, and we can see that. If you want to know what you place your faith in, by the way, I will tell you very quickly. You show me your bank account and your transactions and your diary, your calendar, and what you do, and I will tell you very easily where you've placed your faith, what you spend your money on, and where you spend your time. If we choose to dwell in Jesus and put our trust in him as our only Lord, it's a classic if-then, if we do that, then God promises to give us complete security and victory. So if we abide in Jesus, here's the then, he will be our shelter, our shadow, our refuge, and our fortress. I hope you're liking these pronouns. The third important pronoun is he, verses 3 to 13, referring to the Lord God. Surely he will save you, verse 3. He. Now we know the Lord is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came and and, and lived amongst us. We always celebrate that Emmanuel word at Christmas time. He gets fully involved with the welfare of his people. And verse 4, it's a beautiful verse. Um, if you have it in front of you there, you'll see that a combination of this warm protectiveness of a parent bird gathering the children under the wings. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But also, by complete contrast, the hard, unyielding strength of armor. That's our God, beautifully protected around us. And then the armor strength around that. What a great picture of our God. And then we see in verses 5 and 6 that this God extends his protection to us both day and night, all 24 hours, in other words. There isn't a moment when he goes off duty. He says, don't bother me, I'm having a rest. I need some time out. That's not our God. He's the most high God. He never takes time off. He doesn't need to. He's God. Seven days a week, 366, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's next year, days a year, 24 hours a day, he is there for us. And then it's more than that. Oh, it's more than that. The Lord gives security, we're told, in this psalm against all natural and supernatural causes of fear, whether it comes from evil people and war, whether it's deadly pestilence or disease. There is no limit to his protection. Why? Because God has full authority over all things that happen in heaven and on earth because he created them. And we remind ourselves of that when we pray that prayer that Jesus taught us. Remember the first prayer request. We first of all claim he's our father relationship. We declare his character. He is holy. That's his primary character. We declare where he is in heaven. And then the first prayer request, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Where? In heaven as it already is on earth. On earth as it already is in heaven. That's our God. This promise of God's care, he then expresses very physically in verse 7. We get this picture, and it's, it's obviously a picture of a battle of some form, and there you are in this battle, spiritual battle, and we're told that the people are falling all around you, a thousand on one side and ten thousand at your right hand, and then he says this word, it, 
it. You're going to, what's it? What is it? Oh my goodness. I looked up the word it in my dictionary. It didn't help me very much. It. It might be plague. It might be battle casualties. It might be demonic attacks. But whatever it is, and you fill in that blank because that's your fears. It shall not come near you. And we'll see, um, spoiler alert for my next pronoun, that you is singular. All the way through this, the you, if you do French, it's tout, not vous. It's singular. Fill in that it. Some of you are now doing that, and I hope you are. Oh my goodness, that's the fear that's kept me asleep, awake at night. That's the fear that dominates the conversation. The protected person walks through this holocaust of evil untouched. But they will see the wicked, those who are hostile enemies, lawbreakers. What will they see the wicked? They will see the wicked punished and get their just reward. Our God is a holy God. He doesn't let the evil stuff go unpunished. So what verse 8 is telling us is that this promise for those who trust in God is that we will not suffer God's holy judgment, which we deserve, by the way, but we will not suffer it because of our trespasses, our sins. And we know the wonderful, glorious reason why, can't resist bringing the gospel in here for obvious reasons, is because Jesus paid in full for our sins on the cross. That is the wonderful gospel of amazing grace. So in this psalm, what we've seen so far is that we are promised individual protection. It will not come near you, singular, verse 7. We're promised eternal protection. We will not be punished for our sins. And we're promised miraculous protection with angels guarding us in all our ways, verse 11. What an awesome God we serve. A God who genuinely cares for his people. So let's get to the fourth important pronoun. I've already touched on it. That pronoun is you, verses 3 to 13. Having stated his own personal faith in God, given his own testimonies, we would have commended already during this service, he then, the psalmist, then commends that faith to his readers. This you thing, I've been mentioning, the singular is so important. You need to take these truths on board for yourself. If we truly abide in the Lord God, they are for us. And when we do, we discover that he is utterly faithful to what he's promised. His faithfulness, we read in verse 4, is like a shield and a rampart. And some of you are going, did you look up in your dictionary, rampart? I hope you did, because I don't know what that means. Anyone use rampart recently? Exactly. He's our shield in times of danger. He's our rampart against the enemy. It's a defense to preventing the enemy coming to attack us. Now, let's have a little moment out here of reality. Of course, that doesn't mean that those who trust in God will never die from infectious diseases. Okay? We won't will never be immune. The enemies will plot against us. It doesn't keep us immune from that. What it does mean is that those who trust God are habitually delivered from such dangers. The reality is that God 
intentionally designed each one of us to need help, protection, and provision. That's, that's designed into us. When he created every human being, we were created to need those things and indeed to need them every single day. It's the fear that we don't receive those things. We might not get them. That's what causes us to worry. Go back to the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. We don't usually pray that with any fervor because most of us have got, if you're like me, over big tummies. Okay, and we've got fridges and freezers full of food and we've got money in our pocket to go and buy some stuff. So that is a meaningless part of the prayer to most of us. Let's be honest. But it does encompass we can see it encompass more than that. We were designed by God to need to go to him to satisfy our needs. And it's not just food. So here's the choice that everyone is faced with, because no one is exempt from this. We either go to God, we trust him to provide for all our needs, and he has repeatedly promised to do so, or we choose to live without God's provision. Now, if we choose to live without God, if we say no to the Lord, I will receive from you, guess what? Those needs don't magically disappear. <laughs> Just go, woof. That's why they're called needs. We still need to satisfy the five S's. These are, encompass all our needs. Safety, security, self-worth, satisfaction, and status. In Christ Jesus, all of those needs are satisfied. You come to the Father every day. If you, if you don't, you still need to put food on the table, gas in the car. You still need to have those things. If we refuse God, we always end up, therefore, trusting in someone or something else. Because we have to have those needs satisfied. It might be the government, it might be your bank account, it might be your reputation or your contacts or yourself or somebody else. It doesn't really matter. It's not God. And then we discover inevitably, that those ways that we've tried to satisfy those needs never actually satisfy us. They can't, because the only one who can satisfy us is the Most High God. And they leave us empty inside. Only the Lord can quench our every need, but we have to choose to come to him. Jesus said, John chapter 7, verse 37, come to me all who are thirsty. Yeah, that wasn't that one. That was a different verse. He said, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. That was that verse. Um, anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. So in the terms of this psalm, we have to want to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. Now, in my few years of life going around the sun, I've discovered that if you say something that's really obvious, sometimes people go like, that was really good. So I'm now going to say something that's really obvious, and you can think, oh, that was really good, all right? So here's the state of the obvious. A shelter, you're ready for this, aren't you? A shelter can only protect you if you get under it. Oh, I know. Who saw that coming? See, you'd be pouring with rain, and you could have the umbrella just beside you. And you go, I'm getting wet. Or you can put the umbrella up. Genius. Who saw that one coming? Okay? All the wonderful promises of Psalm 91 are conditional on this. Will you make the Most High your dwelling? Will you come under the shadow of the Most High? That's your choice. 
The psalmist repeats it because he's a good teacher. Just in case we didn't get it to start with, he goes back through it again, like all good teachers do. Verse, uh, if, verse 9, if, if you make the most high your dwelling, then, verse 10, you know evil will overtake you. Why? Because, verses 11 to 14, God will command his angels to protect you. You see the logic of what he said. So whilst it's guaranteed that we're all going to suffer in this evil and fallen world, it's also guaranteed that if we trust the Lord, we will know his divine protection and his deliverance. Now it's interesting to note, just as a slight sidebar, but it is part of this psalm in one respect, that the only record we have of Satan quoting scripture occurred when he was tempting Jesus and he quoted, or more accurately, he misquoted these verses in the psalm, verses 11 and 12. He left out the phrase in verse 11, in all your ways. Now, what did Satan hope to achieve by doing that? In the context of this psalm, now we know the context of the psalm, in all your ways is referring to the free will choice given to all human beings. That obviously now applies to Jesus because at that point he's fully human as well as being fully God. And what's the choice? Do we walk in obedience to the Father or do we go our own sinful way? Choice that we all still face. The Father's way or my way? Satan wanted to go, Jesus to go his way. That's the whole purpose of the temptations, to break his relationship with the Father, make him distrust the Father, you're the son of the father and you're hungry. What's going on here? Doesn't the father love you? That's the first temptation, isn't it? He doesn't care for you. Look, I'm with you. I'm your mate. He always wants to make us distrust the father and then go our own way. That's what all temptations are doing. Break that relationship. So will Jesus take the shortcut to public fame and notoriety or will he be obedient to his father and go to the cross? And we know Jesus' response, if you're aware, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So testing God by jumping off the pinnacle of a temple would be a publicity stunt. The very opposite of trusting the Father. Uh, Satan had said, if you jump off that, the angels will, will be there to catch you, protect you. I think it's worth noting uh, that the angels were actually with Jesus all along. We're told that after Satan had finished these temptations, angels came and attended him, Matthew chapter 4, 11. In other words, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit were actively strengthening Jesus during these temptations. The Father, in his infinite wisdom, may permit terrible things to happen to his children, as he did to his own son. He did it to, allowed it to happen to Jesus. He went to the cross. But his children know that no power is beyond God's control. That's what we know. Our decision is to trust the Heavenly Father, the Most High God, and choose not to test him to see if he can deliver us from our troubles. The fifth important pronoun is the divine I. Verses 14 to 16. We see here God delights in his relationship with this psalmist. Verse 14. It's now as if God has taken over. The psalmist wrote the first verses, and now God is speaking directly. This is his part. 
It's a wonderful climax to this psalm. Because he loves me. That's what the, the father is saying to this man. This was the basis of everything. This relationship was reciprocal. In fact, we know that we can only love God because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. Before the psalmist loved God, God loved him. And the Lord was pleased to honor him and promise him, verse 16, a satisfyingly long life. Now, a satisfyingly long life is very different from a long life. All right? God promises satisfaction. I find it very curious today that there's lots of people who seem to want to live a long life. Some even want to have immortality, and they don't seem to know what to do with themselves on a rainy Saturday afternoon. That's not a satisfying long life. It's just keeping going, all right? Now, verses 14 and 15 shows three things which bring joy to the Father's heart. Three things that are not too difficult for any Jesus follower. Three things we can all do. The first, we've already seen, because he loves me. We are to unashamedly express our love and our gratitude to the one who died in our place on that cross. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. He said he'll then be ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of that. He loves you. He died for you. Be unashamed to say, I love him back. Thank you. Second, verse 14, because he acknowledges my name. Jesus taught us to pray, and that prayer I've already mentioned, to his Father. He says, when you pray, say, our Father. My family knows that one of my pet peeves are people who call themselves Christians who pray to God. Well, no, other religions do that. Jesus told us, when you pray, pray to the Father. Call him Father, Heavenly Father, our Father, Holy Father, Father God, whatever you want, but please call him Father. All right? Don't act like the slave that you once were, that you didn't know him. Act like the daughter or the son who does know him. Please, if you call him God, you are acting like an unbeliever. You might as well be praying to one of the other gods who people worship around here. Do you know that Jesus prayed every single prayer to the Father except one? I'll let you figure out what that one was. Okay, I'll tell you. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that point, he was in the position of sin and cut off from the Father. He acknowledges my name. Holy is your name. That's what Jesus taught us about his Father. Indeed, it's true of himself and the Spirit. A name, what does a name do? It denotes the character of the person. The primary characteristic of our God is holy. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, the seraphs cry out in the heavenly throne room, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. We are to acknowledge with reverence and honor the holiness of God. And as his children, what a, an incredible privilege we've been given what a, to be, have permission to call on his name. There is intimacy involved with this too because we can call him Abba, Dad. We receive authority when we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, not in our own strength and power. And we move in the power of God when we acknowledge and submit to the Holy Spirit. And the third thing, 
because he calls on me. We're, want, we're to want to, to long to, to yearn to be with our Lord, to listen to him. And yes, talk, but we've got two ears and one mouth for good reason. Listen twice as much as we speak. Okay, to converse with him, to call out in times of need and to seek his will and his ways. Now, these three things are expected of God's people. But as always, in this wonderful gospel that we, we know and enjoy, we cannot outgive God. You can't do it. You can try, but I promise you can't do it. So marvel with me at the extraordinary grace of our Lord, who undeservedly gives immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. In these amazing verses, the Lord extravagantly promises to us eight gifts. Uh, and, and here, by the way, here is that important pronoun, I. I will rescue you, verse 14. I will protect you, verse 14. I will answer you, verse 15. I will be with you in trouble, verse 15. I will deliver you, verse 15. I will honor you, verse 15. I will satisfy you with long life, verse 16. And I will show you my salvation, verse 16. Wow. Wow. God is faithful to his beloved. They will know God's presence, God's power, God's protection, and God's provision. This, my friends, is salvation. Now, having said all that, and you might think, well, we've got to the end of the psalm. We, we finished it. But there are some folk here, I reckon, who, despite my earlier warning, are, are frustrated, even infuriated by this psalm. It still feels too Disney-esque, too happily ever after. Some of you are thinking, talk's cheap, mate. I've gone all English there, haven't I? But talk's cheap. Easy for you to stand up there and pontificate. Easy for you to give us the theory. But in my life, it's practice. In my life, I am in the real world. And I'm staring trouble in the face, eyeball to eyeball. And all of that stuff, that, that isn't working. I know that. It's not working. Now, first of all, I want you to believe me that I do hear you. I'm not immune to either fear or suffering. I'm the first to admit it. I don't deny that bad things happen to good people. In fact, I think that the amazing claims of Psalm 91 should be a challenge for any honest believer who looks around their church family. Because we see in our own church family brokenness and pain and suffering and hurt. And, and we've been faithful. We prayed for each other and we still see that. How do we then recon reconcile the great promises and the assurances that we have just read of God's protection with the difficulties we face in the reality of our daily lives? It would be wrong just to ignore that, that question. So simple question we, we can answer. Can God deliver us from our troubles? Answer, yes, he can. And yes, he often does. But the big question for many is, what happens when he doesn't? That's the question, isn't it? But everything's going wonderfully. Everything goes wonderfully. Do, 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 do. Everything's great. 
The fact is, many who come asking God for deliverance or healing are neither delivered nor healed. Not everyone is lifted out of their troubling situation. So what do we do? Here are our options. We can dilute the Psalms' promises. We can make qualifiers. We can say, yeah, but... And we can, we can say, we didn't really mean that, and it doesn't really mean this. And what we do is we end up by quenching its power and removing its truth and its comfort. That's not what we should do. Some will choose to dismiss it as a bad joke, wishful thinking. They'll say, well, I, I'm still suffering. It, it doesn't work. It's a waste of time. I'm going to harden my heart. And we must say no, emphatically no to those responses. To do so would be to misunderstand what this psalm actually says. This psalm is a claim. It says, if and then. If and then. If you choose to dwell in the shelter of the Most High, then we have to choose to come under the shelter. If you abide under the shadow of the Almighty, if you put yourself under the wing of God, and if you trust in his faithfulness, then, then, even though you go through trouble, you can be certain that God is with you. His name is Emmanuel. That's the point. That's the point of this psalm. It's to know the presence of God in and through trouble. Because inevitably, you will go through trouble. The key thing is not to let that particular trouble go through you. This is how the Christian stands. This is how when when the world goes to pieces, the Christian can stand firm, rock solid. The Lord says in verse 10, no evil will overtake you. Does that say it won't touch you? No. No. Does that say that that you'll not go through these things? No. No, it doesn't. Again, verse 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Though cancer may eat your flesh, it cannot eat your soul. Though Alzheimer's may make you forget, God will never forget you. See, what the psalmist is talking about here is not safety in a safe world. You hear some Christians, and you would think they expect to walk around in this little little cocoon of safety where nothing can touch them. That's unreal. It's not like that at all. It's not no afflictions. It's no evil. No evil will overtake you. Afflictions, they touch the flesh. Evil touches the spirit. And we live in a world full of danger and disease. We live in a world where the arrows of accusation and attack are often aimed at us. We have both human and spiritual enemies. But Psalm 91 promises that the person who chooses God as their shelter will be protected by God from all evil. So please hear this. The promise is not the absence of danger. The promises of coming through all danger, unscathed, safe in God. Now, what an affirmation that is to receive at the beginning of a week when we don't know what the next seven days hold. 
None of us know what the next week has. They're unknown. Those seven days are unpredictable. But the Most High has promised to be with us whatever happens. God's intervention into the affairs of humanity is invariably shrouded in mystery. That's my way of saying we don't often get what he's doing. All right? God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways. And sometimes in his perfect wisdom, he chooses not to save us. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar when he threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace, this is what they said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Daniel chapter 3. You know, in the aftermath of the pandemic, in the midst of numerous current world issues and indeed local problems, I believe there's a great need for us to seriously examine who or what we really trust in. Who or what gives us the confidence to keep going? Who or what gives you peace? Who or what makes you feel safe? Do you seek to find your safety in peace, in things and people, or are you going to trust in God Most High? We Christians have to learn to trust more in God than in the worldly authorities. We must give more reverence to God's word than we give to what the world says. Now, please don't mishear me. Often people do at this point. I'm not saying don't listen to medical opinions and don't listen to government leaders. I'm simply asking this question. Who has our actual allegiance and reverence? Who do we fear more? Who do we trust more? Do we tremble at what the experts tell us? Or do we tremble more at the word of God? I mean, COVID or the next virus is not in charge of our lives. Cancer or car accidents, our annoying neighbor, our political opponents, our personal enemies do not have power over us, period. The Most High God does. We are in his hands and we are completely safe there. If we take refuge in God our Father, then the Father has us and he won't let us go because we're promised that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. The question for each of us is, Will we live in fear or will we live in God? And if you want to know where you're living, whether it's in fear or in God, all you've got to do is listen to yourself talk. You'll be, you'll be verbalizing it because what we say gives us away. That's why it's so important to say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress. You're my God in whom I trust. And it's so important to hear him say to you, I will protect you. I will be with you. So when you get into difficulties, don't expect him to lift you out of trouble. He might, praise God. But most of the time, there's greater glory for him if you stay in it and confidently stand firm on his promises. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, like the seraphs, we worship you and proclaim that you are holy, holy, holy. 
We acknowledge you as the most high God. And it's only by your grace that we can be in your shelter. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. We choose to live under the shadow of your wings, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Holy Spirit, when we face trials and temptations this week, we ask you to help us to keep our thoughts on Jesus. Please strengthen our wills, grow within us the fruit of maturity, and give us the wisdom and courage to stand firm. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you all so much for patiently listening to me this morning. God bless you this week. Thank you.